Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Leslie Powell with the Yale World Fellows Program. I'm speaking today with Kala Mulqueeny, a 2010 Yale World Fellow from Australia. Kala is an energy and environment lawyer at the Asian Development Bank in the Philippines. Among other things, she works on environmental courts, sustainable electricity and water regulation, and carbon capture and storage regulation, and is active on these issues all over Asia. Thank you for joining me today, Kala. Thanks, Leslie. I want to start by asking you about your work in Sri Lanka after the devastating tsunami in 2004. You were heavily involved in legal aid and governance projects there that, by your own calculations, helped at least 60,000 people. Tell me about your work there. What were you able to accomplish? Thanks, Leslie. Um, we, uh, I was the lawyer who was assigned to the Sri Lanka assistance that ADB provided. So in Sri Lanka, about 31,000 people were killed. Uh, there was immense property damage uh, and loss of life. There were 5,600 orphans. And so I was the lawyer who went there and on our project team uh, worked with the government to design a govern governance, legal assistance and anti-corruption project. Uh, in that project, uh, we established 11 legal aid centres, uh, nine mediation boards, and as well as that, uh, we had a whole lot of mobile legal aid clinics. Now, why, you may ask, are we doing legal aid and governance uh, following a natural disaster? Well, what was happening was the sort of problems that people were facing uh, involved not just the horrific loss of life and the horrific property damage, but the ability to access uh, their rights uh, and entitlements in order to regain their lives. For example, in Sri Lanka, uh, you can't move without an identity card. And uh, because there was a civil war com conflict at the time. And so without that identity card, without the documentation like birth certificates, uh, death certificates, elders' cards, people were unable to access their rights. So we were helping people with a whole series of documentation. And as well as that, we also were helping uh, people with the disputes that were arising following the tsunami. Uh, for example, uh, people didn't have access to property titles and there would be disputes over uh, whether, whether a piece of land previously had a house on it and previously belonged to any particular person. So for these reasons, it was important to, uh, to provide the legal aid and the legal assistance. And uh, there were no records uh, that remained after the tsunami well, in public institutions or in financial institutions that would show that property actually belonged to some individual or other? Well, this is right. This is where the problem started. Thanks for the for the question. So, a lot of the uh, the documentation was kept in the different regions. Um, so we had uh, administrative offices and some courts also destroyed, um, and with the actual loss of documentation. So part of our work, uh, part of the uh, involved trying to identify and really gr sort of very preliminary ways to identify. Uh, how people owned land and, and delineated land, for example. Uh, the, in relation to some of the documentation, like the birth certificates and the identity cards, uh, there, was, there was some evidence, and that was centrally located in Colombo. But it, it's quite amazing when you go to, so, to a country like Sri Lanka, 
there are no computers and so you can walk into a room and there are stack high piles of documents, no particular filing systems. So this can take forever. So part of our work was trying to actually also automate these systems. Uh, and so as a result of this project, we uh, also uh, re-established administrative offices in all the tsunami affected areas with replacement automated documentation. So you computerized, in other, in other words, the, the systems. Uh, it, it's a simple form of, com- of computerization. Uh-huh. We scan the documents. It's not as sophisticated as in other places, but more than useful and definitely an improvement on what had happened previously. I see. Was the model that you put into place in Sri Lanka replicable or replicated in other areas affected by the tsunami? Uh, in other uh, places, well, what we actually followed the model for after the Pakistan earthquake in 2005, and we used a very similar approach. Uh, in Pakistan in terms of establishing legal aid centres and looking after property disputes. And so actually uh, following the Pakistan earthquake, there are another 28,000 people who are assisted by that assistance. It's definitely a model I believe should be strongly replicated in other places. Uh, It's not always done, but you will find both following uh, natural disasters and conflicts Uh, that these same issues arise in terms of people have difficulty accessing their rights and entitlements and require legal assistance to actually do so. Mm -hmm, I see. Now, you've often said, well, during your time here at Yale, that one of your key goals at the ADB is, is the promotion of justice. And I'd like to ask you to explain that a little bit. In your work at the Asian Development Bank, what are the ways you are able to address, generally speaking, this issue of justice? So I think I think the Sri Lanka example is a very good one, and it's a very mm-hmm. important one in terms of I think there are, there are two different approaches you can take when you're looking at justice issues. And one is the formal mechanism, and I'll speak a little bit, uh, formal mechanisms of justice and the rule of law. And when you think about those, you're thinking about courts, quite often. And then the second aspect is the informal mechanisms. And the, the example I've already given on uh, legal empowerment in Sri Lanka uh, and allowing people in a dis- the, vo- the poorest and the most vulnerable uh, in these regions to actually access uh, justice, not necessarily through sophisticated mechanisms, but through uh, having assistance uh, perhaps by lawyers, perhaps by paralegals, for them to understand who, what their rights are. Uh, and I think in many of the developing countries that is as important as the formal methods of justice. Should, should I go on to, to those methods? Yeah, yeah, explain a little bit more. Okay, so, so what we've been doing and what, what I have tried to, uh, to, to do at ADB is link both justice and my uh, passion for environment. And so we've been working with the judiciaries in the region uh, to strengthen the capacity of judges to decide environmental and natural resource cases. How we have been doing that and how we are planning to do that going forward is really at three levels. And the first level is by establishing and working with a network, the Asian Judges Network on Environment. And that... uh, The idea for that was initiated and forged at a large symposium we had in June this year, uh, where we had about 120 uh, judges, environmental ministers, all come to Manila and discuss and present the initiatives they've been doing to improve environmental and natural resource jurisprudence. The second level is working at the sub-regional level. And so in South Asia, uh, the 
we've been working with the uh, different judiciaries. Uh, will be it will be chaired by the Pakistan Chief Justice to establish a sub-regional uh, roundtable on environmental and natural resource uh, cases. And similarly, the Chief Justice of Indonesia has asked. Uh, has offered to host in 2011 a regional roundtable for for chief justices who are members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Uh, and so through that, we are trying to focus on the leadership uh, of the uh, the judiciary in the legal profession to sort of ignite further interest amongst the legal, legal profession in these countries. Now, we can't just have networks working at a a regional and sub-regional level. We must also focus on the ground. So what we're moving on going forward is continuing work we've done with the Indonesian uh, judiciary and also the Philippines judiciary on uh, actually uh, establishing the systems to improve uh, decision-making by judges. And by that, uh, I will give the example of uh, the Indonesian judiciary. What we are doing there is helping them institutionalise a system to certify judges as having expertise in environment. So for various reasons, uh, they can't have what we see in other countries, an environmental court. However, we can increase the capacity of, of judges to decide environmental cases by focusing on a subset of them, giving training, and then thereafter ensuring that they uh, are the, are the judges the who cases. are actually deciding cases. And this is primarily then an education for judges in environmental issues or environmental science, or what is it that they actually are certified in then? Both of those, mm. both of those things really. I mean, uh, the. Understanding environmental challenges and the, court, the cases that come to court uh, is such a range of different issues, science, economics, etc. So and many of these judges don't have access to any knowledge so that when an environmental case comes before, court, before the court, it's completely new. Mm -hmm. uh, so by providing this sort of training to them in the first instance, uh, some of the general training and then more specifically on ju judicial techniques to decide environmental cases... Uh, as well as specific laws in their own country, which are sometimes new to them. So it has those uh, those components. I see, I see. Uh, I believe you also recently launched a project analyzing the regulatory institutions that determine, for, for electricity and water, the, the prices and quality of both of those things in Southeast Asia. Is yes. that right? Yes. Can you explain, in a, in again, in a general way, what this project is all about and what some of the key findings might be? Sure. If you know them already, or if you can sure. hypothesize. So the project is looking at the regulation of water and electricity in Southeast Asian countries and also in the Pacific. Uh, the motivation behind this study is the fact that there have been regulatory reforms uh, following the Reagan-Thatcher uh, privatisation, deregulation model in developed countries. And then they have been also followed in uh, in many developing countries and as well as in Southeast Asia. Now, these reforms have not always been effective in when transplanted from a developed country context to uh, developing countries. And so what we're looking at is why have 
whether they have been effective and why or why not. In other words, the privatisation of the Water introduction of the private sector, the introduction of competition and the introduction of competitive markets. So, mm -hmm. for example, in the Philippines, uh, they have tried to adopt a competitive market model similarly in Singapore. The Singapore model has had a lot more success than the Philippines model. What often happens uh, is that factors like uh, the extent of corruption that are in these countries and the extent of the additional state-owned monopoly and the extent of or the way countries view their existing laws haven't been taken into account. And for, I'll give you the example of both Indonesia and Thailand. In both of those countries, uh, the, the Supreme Courts uh, decided as unconstitutional regulation that had been passed um, that had had meant to introduce competition and introduce uh, privatisation of their electricity sectors. So these things hadn't been looked at sufficiently in advance. So the, so the study is really looking at why these haven't been effective, and I'm giving you a few examples already. But then in going forward, not only do we ha have to think about um, the traditional model of economic regulation, as you mentioned, that looks at the price and the quality of regulation, but we also need to incorporate thinking about environmental sustainability. And so when we were initially looking at these models, we weren't thinking about climate change, we weren't thinking about water scarcity. And these are really serious challenges for the region at this time. Uh, and so what we are trying to do is think more about how we incorporate uh, environmental sustainability, climate change concerns, into traditional economic regulation uh, of, of uh, energy and water, electricity I and see. water. Uh, following on from that, are there any new ideas on these issues that you've been able to generate during your time here at Yale or through faculty interaction or interaction with any of the schools or departments? Um, that you might be able to apply or take back with you or fold into some of the thinking that you've already had? The, the time at Yale has been very rich. Uh, in fact, some of, the, some of the lessons or some of the experience has been on another project that I've been working on, on carbon capture and storage and climate change. And if I just talk a little bit ab about, sure. about that. So the, so the importance of carbon capture and storage is that it is a technology that would allow us to continue to use coal, uh, notwithstanding the need to reduce greenhouse gases. And so when you look at the United States and when you look at China, China being uh, already a significant coal user and a country that's likely to increase its use of coal from about 6 billion, or, or increase its emissions from about 6 billion tonnes to, to uh, 11 uh, over the next 20 years, uh, we really need to be thinking about what we can do to reduce to reduce the emissions caused by coal following that that trajectory, uh, and so we're looking at carbon capture and storage in China uh, on that. And so I've had several discussions, actually, even with uh, people here in the geology and geosciences department about some of the interesting research they're doing uh, yeah. on on carbon capture and storage, because the problem with it really at the moment is cost, um, price is too high. Uh, uh, to, to make it, we don't have any demonstration projects. We don't have any any projects where this is working anywhere. Well, about four or five in the world. It's not yet at commercial scale, and yet we need by 2020 to have a hundred worldwide 
half of these uh, in the developing countries, or so said by the International Energy Agency. Uh, so that is, a, that is a significant challenge. And so while I've been thinking about that in a, a very practical level, while I've been at ADB, I've been able to stand back and, and, and look at those issues from a variety of angles while I've been at Yale. I see. Um, my final question for you is that you have uh, a special affinity for animals. And you've served on boards or volunteered for civic organizations that protect certain animals, such as orangutans and apes. What is the nature of your involvement in these issues, and how can you contribute to them? So, so thanks for the question. Uh, I, I have volunteered uh, in a range of organizations just to ter- to uh, share with you the. The, the, uh, one of them was the Great Ape World Heritage uh, Species Project, which is a, a project that looks at uh, trying to make the orangutan and chimpanzee and gorilla and bonobo uh, four species on Earth that are the closest uh, to, uh, to our own, uh, separated by between 4 and 2% of D- DNA, uh, make them actually a world heritage uh, species, which, which tries to actually use that to uh, gain publicity and pub- gain publicity for the importance of preserving these, these animals because there are, depending on different counts, only between 15,000 and 40,000 orangutans left in the wild. And so the research I had done was research in Indonesia on their existing laws, uh, biodiversity laws with which to protect them. Uh, other examples... And so, so in that, I have done some some research on that to try and support that project. In addition, uh, another uh, project that I've also supported is on Animals Asia, uh, which is a really important uh, non-governmental organisation based in Hong Kong, uh, which tries to preserve and protect and rescue uh, the Asiatic black bear uh, from a horrific... Uh, horrific cruelty that many of them endure, uh, they are, uh, in China, they are often farmed for their bile, which means that a large catheter goes inside their uh, abdomen uh, and directly to their bile, and many of these animals are in cages for uh, between 20 and 30 years, uh, heavily constricted and without without being able to move. Uh, so I have uh, support, supported Animals Asia as a volunteer for uh, a long time and donated finances to them. And I'll, I'll just give a plug as well. They offer um, the opportunity to support them through uh, even purchasing Christmas presents or sponsoring a bear uh, by give, giving money to actually support their ongoing f- feed and ongoing uh, maintenance. Um, in once captivity. they have, once they have been rescued, once, oh, once they have been, been rescued. rescued. So, so the important piece of this, I'm sorry, is that uh, the Animals Asia has gone on a China bear rescue, basically going to China, try negotiating um, with different bear farms to actually take them out of captivity, and also negotiating with the China gov- Chinese government uh, to actually prevent bear farming. But it's legal in China to do this, or is it not? It's it's legal under certain licenses. So what, what Animals Asia has done is done a large, is negotiated with the Chinese government to actually ensure that um, several hundred bears actually are taken out of, cap- out of captivity. But yes, it's currently legal. Um, one of the important things also is that the reason they do this is for traditional Chinese medicine. And 
it is unnecessary. And we have Chinese uh, medical doctors who are actually saying that synthetic forms of this bear bile can be used instead of uh, instead of actually farming for these bears. Um, so what can anyone do? I guess what people can do is uh, support Animals Asia in the orangutan case. There are many organisations uh, supporting uh, who are actually uh, trying to rescue and preserve the orangutan both in the wild and also uh, those that are recovered or hurt or maimed. There are many rescue centres and they're trying trying to reintroduce them. But I think the problem with separately the problem with orangutans is that habitat destruction is a large cause of loss of many of them and the destruction of Indonesian forests is uh, is an immense problem. Uh, so there are very that, that takes us to a whole different series of issues that people mm. need to focus on. But by and large, your contribution that the contribution you've tried to make to these issues sounds mostly in the le- uh, on the legal issues. You've been able to contribute your, your legal expertise, your legal research, and so forth. Is that correct? Or uh, largely, and also public awareness. For example, I actually brought a representative to Animals Asia to Yale while, during my time here. Uh, and we shared the information about Animals Asia to a large group of, or to the China Economic Forum, in fact. So I think there's a lot that can be done, and I have tried to do, to make some efforts as well in terms of making people aware of these issues and aware of what they can actually do to take forward. I see. Well, good luck to you, Carla. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks, Leslie.